Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. Are you still alive, Andy? Mate, barely. But that was pre-COVID. <laughs> uh, so we had penciled in this mailbag episode quite a number of weeks ago. A lot has changed since then. It would be silly for us to not talk about the current situation. So this is our mailbag episode, but we're going to spend some time at the front discussing everything that's going on. Uh, and as we get started... I just want to talk about the release of our latest chapter, which was on Monday. Monday morning, it felt like I was waking up in a different world. Yeah, absolutely. So we put out the show and all day I was thinking, does anyone even give a shit anymore? Like, what's the point of this? And the feedback we got, it was so beautiful. And I don't want to lay it on too thick, but it was genuinely touching with everything going on to get so many nice messages that we got. So I just want to thank everyone uh, sincerely for all your kind words throughout the course of everything we've done, but especially this week. Nothing brings together rugby league people more than bashing union. (laughs) I got to say, I've been loving the union correspondence too, though. So maybe we're getting soft, but uh, I've got a warm spot for our union contingent. Yeah, so have I. But what's annoying me is that they're thrashing us in the online barbs. I think the private school educations are really <laughs> helping them there and we're getting hammered. So lift your game, uh, rugby league people. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to be sanctimonious, but on both sides, let's just keep it civil, okay? <laughs> you bring up a good point about, you know, wondering if anyone's going to care about this. It's like no one should care about it compared to what's happening in the world. Now, we go out of our way never to date these episodes with the Super League, but a situation like this, we've got to do it, like you said. Yeah. I saw a, an article last night that 51 Italian doctors have perished treating these people over there. Jesus that, Christ. Knock me for six. 51 mm. great people uh, that help everybody else. And it made me think. None of this mattered before COVID. It was just a nice bit of fun, but it really doesn't matter now, does it? Yeah. Football. Uh, if we have risen to the level that we can afford to pivot away from rugby league and go full on moral grandstanding, uh, which seems to be the pattern of podcast hosts, uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll use that platform to say, stay at home. <laughs> I'll use it to use a rugby league uh, parlance. I mean, a lot of people around the world are doing it a bit tough at the moment. <laughs> so... I thought just before we get into it, to give you a bit of certainty in this uncertain world, I just wanted to let everyone know what you might expect from us in coming weeks. So we are planning to plow on as best we can. We've got five chapters left in the first season of this series, and hopefully we'll go straight through those five chapters, but we're just going to do our best to give it to you as disruption-free as we can. We're also going to put out feelers for some uh, rugby league interviews. So I've got a few on my hit list. Greg Florimo, Tony Adams, the mole, Phil Buzz Rothfield, Tony Butterfield up here in Newcastle. So yeah, hopefully we can reach out to a few of these legends of the game and uh, have a chat as well. 
Yeah, there's plenty there. Uh, so let's get into it. We should note at the start that, you know, this situation changes so rapidly, both in a global context and in terms of rugby league. So what we talk about may be out of date by the time this comes out. So it looks like Monday, which will be the day of release for this show, there might be some big announcements from Peter Volandis about some of the short-term implications of everything going on with the financial situation. So we're going to go through all the information we have at hand in the hope that some of it will still be relevant by the time you're hearing this. It's quite amusing, though, that this bloke takes over. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough job, the rugby league boss, but he walks into the biggest calamity of all time. Let's start there. You know, I wanted to give some opening thoughts. What are your thoughts on Volandis? This is really our introduction to him in terms of his role in rugby league. What are you thinking about him so far? Well, I've got no idea because I, I don't know anything about him. And you know, he's been given a rough hand, so to speak. Uh, a friend of mine mentioned the fact that everybody that likes him, all the power brokers that are pushing him, is a worrying sign. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because two weeks ago, when the NRL at that point announced that they were continuing on with the season, a press conference on a Sunday morning with he and Todd Greenberg, it led to a lot of instant reaction on Twitter and elsewhere, people pro-Volandis, anti-Volandis. There was a lot of knee-jerk stuff going on. And, and I agree with you that it's you got to feel for the bloke and anyone in this position to have to deal with something so calamitous it's, and out of your control. In many ways, it's very rugby league as well. Yeah. You get all these grand plans to you know do this, that, and the other, and then they come yeah. like, here's a giant yeah. ditch, uh, dig your way out of that. But I know you didn't see that press conference. I was watching it live, and it was basically Peter Volandis with both hands out asking the government for money, Yeah, which I broadly agree with his sentiment that the government should be bailing out big sporting bodies because these are important pillars of society, you know, and broadly supported and bring in a lot of revenue if you're looking at it you know, in cold, hard financial terms. But read the room, mate. You know, like (laughs) these conversations should be going on behind closed doors. And and I hope in the two weeks since there has been a lot of closed door conversations about it, but no one wants to hear it. When the public's already down on you and down on your sport for the allocation of money for stadiums, yeah, we're dealing with a lack of hospital beds, you know, all these problems with infrastructure, that's the last thing people want to hear. Can you please give us some money to help our sport, which has been terribly managed for 100 years? <laughs> yeah, I know. But if he didn't come out cap in hand, they'd probably be bankrupt already. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the one thing that was really important with that press conference was to let everyone know how serious this situation is in terms of the viability of the NRL. Uh, but just to push back on what he said, he kept on saying that, you know, rugby league could die or rugby league, as he called it, uh, you know, could die. And he made the mistake of conflating the NRL with rugby league. This virus doesn't have the power to kill rugby league. The NRL may die, but rugby league will endure. So coronavirus only has so much hold on our lives. Rugby league will go on whatever shape it's in. Oh, well, I might go back to uh, amateurism drawing on last yeah. week's uh, episode, but I mean, we're broadcasting this, what, two weeks into the Australian lockdowns or something like that. So we're yeah. we're only at the tip of the iceberg. Who knows how bad it could get here? Fingers crossed it won't get bad like Spain or Italy or something like that, but New York or London <laughs> or the rest of the world. Yeah. But uh, if it gets you know 10 times worse, we could be looking at Armageddon for the NRL. Yeah. Whatever happens, it's very hard to see a scenario where the NRL 
next year looks like it does this year. Our Rugby League Digest Twitter put out a question to the listeners about whether or not this is a you know a forced Super League and, and that type of sentiment has brought back a lot of heat. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people aren't happy with that thought, but it's uh, it's pretty much what's happening. I, I must say, as as much as we talk about it here and as much as we can't ignore it now. Anytime you send out a tweet like that, I fall apart. I'm like, no, why did you do it? <laughs> I like to get the, the, the people's thoughts and the thoughts are <laughs> unhappy. <laughs> so I don't want to undersell the seriousness of the situation and how critical the matter is, but there is also an opportunity to reshape the game, to make it more economically sustainable, to make it more logical in the way the competition's structured, so as challenging it is, there are also some opportunities there. Well, that's a nice sentiment as well, but I just don't trust rugby league to be able to manage itself. It's just proven it time and time again, like how are we in this position again? Yeah, and that has got to the caveat in what I just said. My next point, uh, I'll read it verbatim. That will require a suppression of self-interest that bucks against a century of rugby league history. <laughs> well, have you got any realistic options? <laughs> well, let's get into it all. So, you know, there's obviously a few things to talk about. Let's start with the decision to shut down the competition for the year. And more specifically, the decision to keep it going until they were basically forced to shut down. How were you watching that situation play out? I was watching the games and I, I was quite proud of the fact that they were pushing on at that point. They had the World Health Organization's blessing and uh, the government blessing. So I was happy that they were giving the fans something to watch, even if it was empty stadiums. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think ultimately it was becoming a really bad look to keep the competition going. But I don't blame the NRL for doing so. And I could also see some actual public good in having the competition running. I mean, I was certainly enjoying the fact that rugby league was still going on when so many other sports were shutting down. We were seeing new interest in America and talks of deals with, you know, different broadcasters. It was a positive thing in the midst of, you know, this worldwide meltdown. Looking back on it, it doesn't look like a great thing that we were doing, but at the time it was fine. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy for the NBA to make that decision when A, they've, you know, got players testing positive, but B, there's a substantial bank behind them. The NRL didn't have that luxury. It was comical though that they had them sitting two meters apart on the bench and then tackling each other on the field. <laughs> <laughs> Ludicrous. But. So I think ultimately it was handled badly, but I don't really blame the NRL for trying to continue. And I actually thought some of those contingency plans, there's a world in which they work, whether it's the, where was it, Gladstone, wherever they were all going to bunker down for however long. I thought that was a, a reasonable idea. I thought that their attempts were A1, so I don't know why people were bagging them in inverted commas. Yeah, but obviously the decision has been made and it's left us in a very precarious position. What about the reason we got there, the league finances or lack thereof, the fact that the competition shuts down for a month and <laughs> the whole thing's in, in danger of going bankrupt? I didn't bring this up to you off-air in our discussions, but I think what we should do on there now is commit to going through club and NRL finances to find out exactly where the money goes because I for the life of me can't understand how they can be always in the red. The alarm bells is what's come out in the last couple of days with $10 million going missing from the player's superannuation fund. Money that was supposed to be paid into a, an NRL retirement fund has for the last, I think it was two and a half years or something, not been going into that fund and it's been used for operational costs. Let's look at it from the club point first, right? So they've got 130% of the salary cap. Is that correct? As a grant? Yeah. Okay, right. So that's their salary covered for the year and then 
an extra 30% for operational costs of a club. Then they've got their sponsorships, unless they're the Bulldogs. Then they've got tickets and food and whatever, beverages. Then they've got leagues club money, pokey money, blood money for some clubs. Ownership money from some clubs. How can they be always in the red? Like, yeah, people siphoning off money and like leasing cars and apartments and stuff for the like, directors. What's happening? The next chapter of the Super League War is about Souths and the financial position they found themselves in the seventies through the nineties, basically. And when you look at what was going on in the seventies with poker machine money just literally disappearing, and there seemed to be no books to be able to trace it. Yeah, it feels like we haven't improved from that nearly 50 years later. You mentioned all those streams of revenue and obviously the operational costs are high, but I don't know. I think you're right. Someone needs to go through the books and it might as well be us. So you mentioned that 130% of the salary cap that the clubs were allocated. That was a deal that John Grant put together. And this week he's been, in many ways, made the scapegoat for everything that's going on. Uh, Shane Richardson coming out slamming him for that decision you know saying that he didn't have the balls to buck against the the clubs that he capitulated looking at it from an outsider's point of view it looks that way right but i give these guys a little leeway because you're dealing with rugby league people like 16 self-interested clubs the system is the problem it's not the people as much as the system yeah exactly and it's very easy to blame john grant and move on with your lives but we all know that the problem runs much deeper than that if you ever watch the wire how everything's interconnected and nothing could ever be possibly fixed (laughs) that's rugby league yeah yeah so john grant left and now he's back on a corner trying to secure some third-party deals in another sport (laughs) it was funny in that criticism that Shane Richardson had of John Grant, he actually outlined a plan that he sent to the league when he was working there, uh, when all this was going on, to streamline the NRL, you know, restructure the junior leagues, have a fundamentally different way of thinking about how to run the game, uh, which was accepted by the commission. But of course, the clubs then came in and thought, you know, they're they're trying to take our juniors, these same small-minded, like self-interested ideas that they're always dragging rugby league down. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, interesting about Shane Richardson, a listener on Twitter. I didn't write his name down, which is obnoxious, but a uh, very good point. He suggested that Shane Richardson is probably the best candidate for a global rugby league executive, given that he's had experience in Super League, experience in the NRL, and experience for the NRL. Yeah, and it has certainly had success basically everywhere he went, hasn't he? Except Gateshead, I think. Yeah. I think it's in a vacuum, it's a great decision, but it's... This whole thing has made global matters just seem so far away. Yeah. I mean, I shudder to think what's happening into the English game. Yeah. I mean, we've got a question about Toronto, but we might as well talk about it now. Like, they're Toronto in name only now, basically, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what happens there. And as I said, this global crisis has turned my attention so inward. And it's it's not even, like, focused Australia-wide, but focused New South Wales-wide. Like, I'm not really interested in what's going on with coronavirus in Western Australia, let alone Canada. Yeah, I mean... When your focus is on buying toilet paper and pasta, (laughs) it's a little bit more pressing, isn't it? So I think it's going to be a long time before we get back to a situation where two years ago we were spending all this time talking about how rugby league could be this great global sport and we should be here and we should be there. That just seems like another world, doesn't it? It's such a shame because I was just getting into Super League again on KO. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoying it. It was sort of on the upward swing, Super League. Yeah. The French teams are doing you know well, and you know, Toronto's coming in. Ottawa's been announced, and I'm yeah. how good is this? Yeah. And then uh, even if it's not rugby league shooting itself in the foot, someone else has got the, <laughs> the shoddy. 
So, yeah, as I said, my attention's been very insular. So I don't want to speak about the Toronto situation or the English Super League situation with any authority. Uh, But maybe Neil or or anyone else who might have some insight, please let us know your thoughts on everything that's going on and where to here for English Rugby League. We're really happy about our English following online and uh, emails and stuff. It's just, it's good that we're getting a bit of global love. So keep it coming, guys, please. We love our English listeners so much because of how passionate they are about rugby league. And this has been like, probably like, we were probably four weeks into it before we started getting someone from St. Helens or wherever else emailing us about the show. So yeah, it's really magical. And so with that, what the short-term future is at least, is that it's clear cuts are coming. The NRL, an article yesterday said that their operational costs were, what was it, $500,000 a day. So it's clear that there's a lot of fat to trim. My worry is that are they going to be the right cuts? Are they going to be the cuts that are actually going to be effective in not just fixing the game right now, but safeguarding the game for the future? Or are they just going to be the easiest cuts they can make to keep them afloat for the next six months? It's like when Telstra or a big organization says, we're laying off 12,000 staff. And it's like, well, if you can operate with 12,000 less staff, why weren't you doing that before? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. How are they so bloated? It's crazy. Mm. Roy Masters had an article during the week talking about uh, assets. The AFL has their big asset is Marvel Stadium. Uh, the league's only asset was NRL.com and everything associated with that. And that was something that when the budget was announced, I whatever it was, $500 million over five years. I can't remember the figures, but it was a large figure for a digital strategy. But everyone on the outside criticizing the NRL was saying, oh, $500 million for a website. It was just diminishing the idea that this sort of stuff was important. Whereas Roy Masters argues it actually is an important asset. And yeah. it's been valued at anywhere from $50 million to a billion dollars. The billion is obviously a potential where it might get to. But it seems like something like that is standing out as glaringly obvious to make that cut when really that could be the basis of a future strategy, a future direction. That would be like tying one hand behind your back now in, in this era if you cut the online presence down to save some money. Yeah, and or selling it off on the cheap when there's a chance if you look at everything that's happening in broadcasting even before coronavirus, like the bottom's falling out of the market and you know, your digital rights are like really, really important. Well, they were an afterthought in the uh, Super League negotiations, but <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> well, did we learn nothing from Russia and the Russian oligarchs? I mean, they sold everything off for peanuts and look at them. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because that, all that seems just like, even to me who can see the value of it, it all seems like a luxury now. You know, I'm always going on about the history presence of the website. You know, I have grave fears for the physical museum. What's going to happen with all of that stuff that's very important to me. I can see how that's an extravagance in these times. Yeah, there's going to have to be cuts made. What about the clubs? You mentioned all the revenue streams they have coming in. Suddenly we're looking at a situation where the league's clubs are closed for a month, two months, six months, however long. What's going to happen? To me, that's the actual best part about this is they can no longer steal from the vulnerable to fund their clubs. Yeah. So that's one positive out of this disaster. But I agree with Joey. I think if you can't survive as a business, you need to have some, you know, a good hard look at yourselves. Agreed. And the clubs have really only got themselves to blame, but it also goes beyond them with the failure to, to rationalize Sydney 25 years ago or even before that. But as we see from the Twitter response to anything suggesting something like that, everybody wants it rationalized, but no one wants to rationalize. Yeah. So 
The hard decisions that will never get made might be getting made here. Yeah. Well, just to plug an appearance I did on ABC Overnights, which you can um, go to the ABC website and find that. I was on the, the Saturday uh, morning show. Uh, and I think you handled yourself very well. You sounded like an actual ABC radio guy. It was actually very off-putting to get on the phone and, and hear you know this ABC voice. It was quite intimidating to have to go back and forth with that. But uh, it was very enjoyable. Uh, really great bloke, Rod Quinn. Big manly man by the sounds of it. Yeah, that was unfortunate. But uh, <laughs> good like nonetheless but track that down but what i said on that program which i'll repeat here is i don't think it's possible that clubs are gone next year i think it's inevitable i really can't see a situation where we have the same 16 clubs going around next year can you i don't know i mean rugby league has survived oily rag for so many years i wouldn't be surprised if they all managed to keep it afloat but i mean we're talking we're hearing about all these rescue packages and and this plan and that plan and as i said Hopefully some of this will have come out by the time you're listening to this. I'd rather the money go to a hospital ventilators than the uh, West Tigers, put it that yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I, I think even without government intervention, I think there are better ways the NRL could distribute money if they want to continue long term than just propping up clubs that can't do it alone. If they do go broke and uh, have to leave the NRL, I hope they can stay in park football. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. just be a new town and so... The five to 15,000 people for each club that attend the games can still go and watch them if they want to. That's exactly right. Any harsh decisions that may need to be made need to be done with an exit strategy, a way to save as many people, you know, from being lost to the game. Like, we don't want to repeat of what happened in the 90s where teams were cut adrift and the fans left. We want to be able to package this that it is a sad but unnecessary reality, but if you're really invested in your club, you can still go see them every weekend. Yeah, but yet again, no one wants it to be their club. No, and why would you? I mean, I can definitely understand that, and I certainly am not presenting any answers today of what 12, 14 teams should survive. We'll see how the situation plays out. Let's just talk about the players. We heard 87% a few days ago. Now it looks like it's more 80 75% cuts to their salaries, which is devastating. It is. I'm actually really impressed with how they've handled it. There's been no uh, whining since the head of the Federal Reserve, BJ Lalua, was complaining a few weeks ago. It's very uh, magnanimous of them, I think. And the situation's changed so rapidly day to day that I think if BJ Lalua was asked today, yeah. he'd have a very different response. Agreed, so I'm, yeah. I'm even going to give him some slack for that. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, but I agree. There's been a lot of maturity from the public statements from the players and you've got to remember that when the, the CBA deal was going on, the whole talk was the players being stakeholders and we want to be invested in the game. We rise with the game. We fall with the game. We have a responsibility uh, to, you know, we're only in this together. And, and I think they're seeing the downside of that, but, you know, in a very good attitude so far. Well, this is the paradox of rugby league people. We're just saying trashing them for being self-interested and incompetent, but they're also team players and salt of the earth people deep down. So it's really good to see. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the broadcast landscape. It's even harder to imagine Foxtel surviving into the next couple of years than it is some of these clubs. We've heard how many people have cancelled. I think you'd probably be looking at 80, 90% cancellation rate if you didn't have to spend five hours on the phone with them to actually make that happen. 
what's going to replace that in terms of like money coming in? This is a real danger. We've seen Nine cut their payments. Fox are doing the same. And there was a lot of crowing online in, in the wake of the announcement that Nine were trying to weasel their way out of their deal. A lot of people saying, good, get rid of them. We want someone else to do it. And it's like, I understand the sentiment. I'd, I'd love for someone else but Channel 9 to have the rights. But like, who's going to come in with all the money we need to replace that deal? I think it's better the devil you know at the moment. What pushed that sentiment was probably their reaction to the pushback season proposal. Yeah. And the, we can't uh, put the grand final on Origin on. We need to put 2020 on. Yeah. <laughs> well, all due respect to 2020 fans, but it's an embarrassing uh, farce of a game for idiots, you know? But Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all due respect. But yeah, that is about the respect due. So. See, like that screams Channel 9, and yeah. I think that should come into play when the next TV deal's up, when everything's back yeah. to normal. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. If when we do get back to a position where we're negotiating from a position of strength, I hope they remember this and remember how Channel 9 reacted to this situation. But in the short term, that's not going to help us. No, but people are going to be hanging out for Rugby Lee. That's a fact yeah. when, it, when it comes back. Well, the other thing on that I want us to talk about was how Fox League have handled the lack of live footy. And in a word, I'd say so far terribly. Again, hard situation to be in. I know we're biased. We always talk about history, but they've got the fan, you know, Vossi's show. They do a good job. Outside of that, they do basically nothing. Over the off season, they ran this top five program, which I thought, oh, that sounds good. Top five rookies of the 90s, all these different categories they had where they basically get Brian Fletcher to come on and say nothing for two minutes, then throw to 30, 40 minutes of a random Balmain South game from the 90s. And, and that was it. That was deemed acceptable programming. I tell you what you realize when there's no football, like them talking about the games is interesting and in, because they're experts and et cetera. Them talking about anything else, it gets very old very quickly. They're sitting on a treasure trove of footage, you know, everything they have and do nothing with it. I'm with you. And now you're in a situation where you've got no content because you didn't spend three years working on 30 for 30s for rugby league. You didn't spend three years putting together dedicated shows that go beyond whatever bullshit is happening that week in rugby league. Is there any more sports suitable for 30 for 30s? Like Dennis Tuddy. I know. Uh, yeah. Like the one we saw at the Rugby League Players Association, that piece. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's give a plug to that. The Professionals, uh, which you can see on NRL.com. We uh, played our part in making that happen, a small part, of course, but fantastic documentary. So go to NRL.com and have a look at that. But that's exactly what Fox League should be doing and, and haven't. Well, I'd like to sit here and hypothetically run Fox Sports, but we've got bigger fish to fry at the moment, mate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we'll move on. <laughs> uh, I do like how they're, they're they're recalling the old games uh, starting next That's weekend. That's cool. Um, well, that, that is cool. It should be just the start, but yeah. Let's look at the future, uh, a few scenarios, what we might be seeing next year. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? I kind of think logistically we're stuffed, you know, even if – some things get relaxed. The travel situation is going to be a nightmare. If the borders are still closed, how are the Warriors going to be a part of it? Even interstate, I'd imagine like flights are going to be a lot more expensive and it's going to be really difficult to put this together logistically even next year, I think. Yeah, I agree. One of the ideas that I've seen floated was a magic season where basically the whole year is played in one venue, presumably Suncorp. It doesn't help the Warriors though. Got to move their families over. Well, it doesn't help, but at least they could bring their families, and that's one solution. Well, on the Warriors, when they were going to stay in Australia, and they said, "No, we're going to stay. We're going to play. We're going to finish the season." I was really proud of them. Yeah. And then about a week later, I was like, 
the wags have been blowing up then there's this crisis talks <laughs> but so it, it was like a month ago we were talking about a second brisbane team and you know potentially going to 18 teams i mean at least that has been shown to be the terrible idea it always was but <laughs> Just it's going to be really hard, and perhaps in the short term, the national competition that we've been talking about for three years is just not possible at this moment. Well, all the ARL uh, loyalists are going to be happy because we might have a um, New South Wales rugby league next year. So yeah, just on uh, on this year, if we ever do get back, there's been a couple of suggestions on this idea. One is that Origin is pivotal. Whatever else happens. If we can get an Origin series in somehow, that will be a source of some much-needed revenue. The ratings will be through the roof. I kind of think that that needs to be the priority. They're talking about running it after the grand final. I kind of think go the other way. Just have Origin first. My, how the mighty have fallen. Here we have spent three years on the weekly show going, we need to put the comp before Origin. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're exactly right, but... uh, that seems the surest bet at this point. Yeah. It's so funny how everything we trash about rugby league administrations, we're guilty of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm talking about this for one season, of course, in e- extreme circumstances. I mean, like, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. I mean, that would draw in a big chunk of money that could prop it up for a while. Yeah. And, you know, if you need some trials or whatever to get players into match fitness... What about a city-country series beforehand and a Queensland equivalent? I mean, hell is frozen over. I just heard Michael Adams put Origin over the grand final and then suggest bringing back city-country. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it was fair income. I mean, even in this situation, I reckon it would, would be Mickey Mouse. I kind of feel if we've got, you know, three or four months with no football at all, the players would make it fair dinkum. Um, one of the solutions I've seen for... If we do get more football this year and it runs into November, December, the SCG's out because cricket will be back. Thank God. So the grand final would then likely be at Bankwest Stadium. Which it should have been in the first place. Meanwhile, the best rugby league venue in the world sits unoccupied with double the capacity. It definitely should be at Suncorp, but we couldn't possibly move it out of the state that's ruined the game. Yeah. That's something that I just thought was absolutely ludicrous, that in this time you couldn't even make that deal happen. I reckon the NRL would play it at Lyle Peacock Oval in Toronto before <laughs> Suncorp. Yeah, or maybe get Topper Stadium back uh, back cranking. <laughs> it's now a greyhound track, I'm afraid. <laughs> the other model that's been suggested for the future uh, in terms of a restructuring of the NRL is what's been described as the English Premier League model, which is basically a club-run game. So the clubs... Can you imagine? They want to go back to the old 48-man committee. It is. And I understand you're looking at... And it's it's not, you know, unique to the English Premier League. If you look at American sports, it's, you know, largely the same with the NBA and the NFL. The owners have all the power. That is so far from how we are with rugby league in this country that how could you plausibly make that suggestion... <laughs> knowing anything about the history of rugby league in Australia. It needs to be run by an administrator, <laughs> not bloody the clubs. <laughs> like, whatever happens going forward, we need the clubs as far away from decisions as possible. But yet again, I've, I've got to bring up the system because, I mean, I know guys, or I've met them at least, and spoke to them that run rugby league clubs, and they're super intelligent blokes, these guys that I've met, right? And rugby league just gets the better of them somehow. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's so true. That's our next thing. Rugby League Digest four corners style investigation into Rugby League finances. Yeah. So I do want to get to some emails in our mailbag. Do you have any closing thoughts on what lies ahead? In the scheme of things, I'm not that worried about it, to be honest with you. It's Yes, it's good to get back into the saddle and do the podcast, take our mind off things, and we've loved this game all our lives, but it's still a game of football. Very true. So with that, let's talk about this game of football and some of the correspondence we've got about it. And I just want to say, with the emails, I love them so much. Uh, I'm very slack with the responses sometimes. All this research buries me at times, but it really does mean a lot to both of us to get all these thoughtful memories and all these just like top shelf analysis and insight that stuff that we hadn't thought of or, you know, some little insider bits of information. So please keep them coming. Um, yeah, we, we truly do treasure them. When we started the weekly show, we wanted a, a community of intelligent rugby league fans, and barring a couple, mainly <laughs> me and a few others, we've achieved that. If you can recommend us to your friends, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, that would be a big help to us. Thanks very much. Yeah, and more importantly, tell them to listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the main part of it, yeah. <laughs> Just on the emails, if I'm not reading anything out from your email in this episode, it's likely because it uh, relates to stuff in future chapters that we're not going to talk about yet, or it's, it seems like it could be something that we're setting confidence. So um, I just want to say I really do appreciate it. Uh, there's no real structure here. Some of it's Super League related, some isn't. Uh, I'm going to start with one from Terry Lingwood, who he was involved in telecommunications and sent me a long, long email that it's actually going to be a formative document for me if I ever get to put this research into any other format because it went into so much detail into all the ins and outs of the business and the, and the political side of things. I'm not going to go into that tonight. I'm just going to talk about uh, some of his general memories and I'm just going to read this out. In the early 80s when Winfield became the major sponsor, the New South Wales Rugby League came in for heavy criticism for turning the pre-game entertainment into a Winfield advertisement. In 1986, I remember going to the Anzac Day game at the SCG. Winfield had these beautiful model girls handing out cigarettes at the entrances to the ground. Today we'd call that drug pushing. I sat for a level 2 coaching course in 1989. When they got to drugs, they mentioned alcohol, marijuana, steroids, but no mention of cigarettes. Oh, the course was sponsored by Rothmans. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? And, and that's kind of the troubling thing now when you're looking at maybe a, a dearth of sponsors if, if all these companies are, are going under. You know, obviously the, the cigarettes and to some extent the alcohol has been legislated out of sponsorship. Gambling's basically all we have left already. But like, are we going to be selling, you know, sex toys or, you know, penile enlargements next year? Like what's going to be left? I reckon they're legitimately discussing heroin as a potential. <laughs> <laughs> but um. I reckon we're going to be bombarded with gambling ads for yeah, yeah. again. Yeah. That was the first thing I thought when I reread this email in the context of everything happening now is that they're going to have to, and I can't really blame them for it, squeeze everything they can out of the gambling dollar. <laughs> the game's been funded on hurting people for 100 years. We might as well continue it. <laughs> Disgusting. Uh, so the next one I wanted to shout out was by uh, Neil Stossel, who's one of our English listeners. Actually uh, corresponds with us quite a lot on Facebook. So if you're not following us on Facebook, make sure you um, get involved there. And also uh, join our discussion group as well, as always. Uh, a lot of interesting conversation there. But uh, Neil sent me this beautiful email about his experiences growing up as a Featherston fan and living through all of this 
rationalisation that took place during the English Super League. And this really touches on what you said earlier about everyone's in favour of rationalisation until it's maybe a harsh decision affecting them. So I'll, I'll just read this out in full. I genuinely think that we are all, as supporters of rugby league, game first people, right up until the day that it's your club that's being told to either merge or piss off and die neither of which is ever going to happen anyway because of the fighting spirit, tenacity, refusal to be beat, toughness that defines your club and everyone associated with it. At which point, game first goes right out the fucking door. Your rugby league club is like your kids. You don't love them because they're good, you love them because they're yours. And it's incredibly hard to imagine them not being there in the way you've always known them. Plus, the very DNA of the game means the supporters and members will always fight tooth and nail to survive on their terms and won't be told what to do by any bugger, even if that means missing out on the big time. You wanted and still do want to be in Super League. Of course you do, but not at any price. And the way my club, uh, which was Featherston, was treated all those years ago still results in a bit of resentment and mistrust, which is not exactly helped by the old Northern mentality, which you highlighted last week. Miserable, suspicious, bear a grudge, etc. <laughs> and this is the really hard thing for Rugby League because... We've talked about endlessly in terms of Super League. However necessary a decision might be, it's always going to be devastating for some. And for some, they're just never going to come back to the game. Yep. Whatever massaging you want to do with it this time, like there's that that's unavoidable. It's going to be collateral damage if clubs go down, fact. When, when I put the call out for some hypotheticals uh, for this episode – mergers, you know, what could have happened, what should have happened, that is still the dominant question we get asked. Yeah. So it's clear that that is still the biggest challenge to fans of the game in getting over Super League. And as much as we want to sound like experts, I've got no idea what the best way of solving that problem is. It's one of those there is no answer problems, I think. So, yeah, watch this space. Uh, Something not related to the current situation at all, but an email that gave me chills and even rereading it in preparation for this I got the same uh this was from Michael Marr who wanted to email us about one of our favorite topics flow so I'll, I'll read this in full as well my brothers and I grew up as diehard Bears fans in the 90s living in Narrenburn just a few minutes from North Sydney Oval we played rugby league from age five for the mighty Willoughby Roos I can tell you that flow was not only the ultimate clubman for the Bears but also for the Roos He coached at least a couple of teams each season. I was lucky to have him as coach from under fives through under eights and was on hand for every job, no matter how small. After Thursday night training, he'd be in the canteen making the hot milos for the kids while they waited to get picked up in the cold. Saturday mornings, Greg would be at Willoughby Park from 7am, setting up pads on the posts, turning on the barbecue, filling the Gatorade buckets, etc. He'd be running the water for teams throughout the morning and giving little tips to every kid on the park. A pat on the back when you drop the ball, a big cheer on the very rare occasion that we'd score a try. I imagine he played some behind-the-scenes role in our ruse team regularly running balls out before Bears games, playing at halftime on a Friday night, getting the odd piece of free merch at our presentation days. After playing a mini-game at halftime under lights, one of the Bears trainers brought us all meat pies and cans of Coke to enjoy while we watched the second half from the sideline, sitting with our backs to the picket fence. That night was heaven on earth for six-year-old me and would be the same for me today. He's an absolute treasure, an ornament to the game. As I said to Michael when he sent me that email, I've never been less surprised by the contents of an email, but it's still just something so beautiful. And Flo has been, you know, somewhat of a, a running joke for us over the years, but that is coming from a place of 
just boundless admiration for his passion for the game, his abilities in every area. And yeah, what more can you say about that bloke? I'm just glad that's, uh, that story has been told in public now because he's the sort of guy who would never brag. You can just tell. And all the bad stories we hear about rugby league people, it's magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want us to shout out long-time listener Guy Wilson. Uh, he's been our Adelaide correspondent since the very early days as well. Have loved your support over the years, Guy. Uh, he actually sent me a photo on Monday morning, the last day of pub trading. He and a mate gathered together to have a beer together before that all goes away for who knows how long. Uh, it was quite a touching email to get, so I, I want to thank Guy for that. He also had a, had some memories of Super League, which I wanted to touch on. One was Ray Warren calling Super League games uh, for Channel 9 and doing so very unenthusiastically, like it was a contractual obligation that <laughs> he you know, wasn't really enthused to be calling those games. Do you remember much of Rab's calling Super League? No, I don't actually. And I, I didn't notice that it was underwhelming either at the time. Um, I think the whole vibe was just underwhelming anyway. Yeah. Like both comps, no one was doing cartwheels to be watching either game, you know. <laughs> so I, I don't blame him. But a question Guy asked in relation to that was, do you think Super League actually thought of commentators? You know, we've talked about deficiencies in thinking about, you know, referees and grounds, all that, those sorts of logistics things. Was the same true of commentators? I think it would have been a fait accompli situation where they were just thinking Graham Hughes will do it, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I want to talk about Warren Smith. So Warren Smith was at Fox from 95. I'm not sure if, if he was their main caller because, you know, as I mentioned, I didn't really watch Super League and I didn't have Fox till then. But what's your opinion of Warren Smith? I always liked him. I always liked his attitude. He doesn't try to be something he's not and he doesn't try to be too blokey, which I find annoying on the radio commentators. I think about him in terms of Andrew Voss where both of them have the voice. They've both got like a great voice for calling and they're both – excellent callers but I think they both lack the gravitas I think there's this archness or like an aloof detachment to their calls whereas Rabs I've got plenty of other problems with Rabs's commentary I'm not necessarily his biggest fan but with Rabs he always sells it like it's life and death like you always feel that he is like apart from the Super League calls that there's nothing else in the world happening but this game right now. I am Rabs's biggest fan, but I think the gravitas comes with age and experience because when Rabs came out, people would have been thinking the same thing about him, I reckon. But I think both Smith and Voss have been in the game long enough that Yeah. You know It's also that thing where Rabs is a a bloke's bloke and those guys are a little bit more polished, you know, yeah, media yeah. training type uh, vibe. I think that's part of it, yeah. I, I like all three of them, though. I think they're all good callers. Yeah, I, I think they are all excellent callers, but that would be my uh, where those two fall down for me in my list of, you know, rankings. But also it's like two other rock and roll singers. Why isn't this guy John Lennon, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. The second thing I wanted to bring up from Guy's memories uh, relates to his experiences going to a Super League match. So like me, he was a Dragons fan, wasn't invested in Super League, but went to a Sharks vs. Cowboys game uh, on a Saturday night in 1997. In his uh, blunt terms, everything about it was shit. Uh, it started with the over-enthusiastic staff on the gate trying to fire up fans entering the ground. Just let me pay for a ticket and get in the ground. They were shit. Then it was the ground announcing. It was like an Aussie version of the American guy who did the Sydney Kings games of around the same era, Rodney O. And like Australians who do rap or hip-hop, they just proved to me it should be left to Americans. He, whoever he is, was shit. 
<laughs> then up on the scoreboard, they had kids playing PlayStation game surprises. I can't remember what games exactly, but they were driving games where the kids kept on crashing into walls and trees. All the while, Aussie Rodney O was calling it like Murray Walker. The kids were shit, and Aussie Rodney, well, you guessed it, shit. <laughs> That's hilarious for a start, but... I went to Cronulla v Knights at Cronulla and it was like nearly packed and the, the crowd was disinterested in Halcyon days. So <laughs> yeah. but, um, that's just Cronulla for you. But that's rugby league to a T there right there. So it's you try something uh, and you're the worst in the world. You don't try something, you're the worst in the world. So if, if they were sitting there with like two old guys with brill cream selling footy doubles, they'd be like, what are they doing? They're like, <laughs> <You know? laughs> One thing I'll, I'll say, this was his closing point. I'd rather watch the Dragons draw nil all with the Crushers in a bog at Cogra if at halftime I could enjoy seeing the Wonder Dogs chasing Frisbees. <laughs> oh, yes. Again, where are the Power Super Dogs? <laughs> Bring back the Power Super Dogs. That should be our first merch when this apocalypse is over. <laughs> Power Super Dogs. Um, great email. That was hilarious. We'll leave the emails there. I'll, I'll get to the questions. I asked for questions and hypotheticals. Basically, everything was hypothetical. So let's let's just, we'll start with that and uh, get your thoughts. I'll start with maybe the most pressing question from this whole Super League war. Uh, this was from at Kid Bronchitis on Twitter. What if the Mariners remained and the ship shapes got to stay? <laughs> well, that would be a dream scenario. Um, and I say bring back the ship shapes. Uh, I, I'm up for bringing back the ship shapes too. I think that if they had remain the mariners would probably be defunct by now anyway just because the newcastle knights but the ship ships would have went on to have their own empire like mary kate and ashley <laughs> like a, like a, a k-pop band you know like we'd be on to our third or fourth iteration of the ship shapes it'd be a wiggle style global empire it'd be like young talent time for the modern era yeah uh on the first part of that the less important part i think any mariners remaining would have been a merger with the Knights. You know, there's no way there's two Newcastle teams. I think the Aussies for the ARL experience of 97 would have made it hard for however much Super League won in terms of the reunification of the game to jettison the Knights in favour of the Mariners would never have really been on the table. So a merger between the Mariners and the Knights, some things that could have happened there. Well, I put this to you and I put this to the listeners we saw how ridiculous it was to try and put a second team competing with the Knights in Newcastle. Why is the second Brisbane team looked at them so favorably? It's as ridiculous. I don't think as ridiculous. Well, not quite as, population. Like it's, it's the same vibe because... They've got their work cut out for them. Uh, and especially because you do have the Gold Coast right there. Yeah, that exactly. That is an alternative. It just seems bringing in a second team, all you're doing is cannibalizing a fan base. You're not getting new fans to the game as we've discussed on the weekly show Ipswich I can definitely cop and Central Corridor I can cop it's just like why cannibalize your flagship yeah one team town Mm. Uh, we'll move on to at Matt 1579 Uh, he'd like to see an entire episode about what the game would look like if Super League never even was a thought on that I want to use a quote uh, about Graham Parsons given by his roadie he was asked if Graham Parsons, of course, a famous country singer of the late 60s, early 70s, who uh, died of a drug overdose, age 26. He was asked if he was alive today, you know, what would have happened? And the roadie said, if he was alive today, he'd still be dead because that's the path he was heading down. Genius quote. So 
Super League maybe would have been a very different proposition. It wouldn't have been maybe it wouldn't have been news limited. Maybe it would have been driven by the ARL. Who knows? Uh, knowing their form, probably not. But I think the twenty team thing was always going to cause problems. There was always going to be a point where something needed to change. I don't know about that. I mean, um, look at the AFL how they went from strength to strength because they didn't have a civil war. It was a different situation, though. You already had Sydney clubs failing. The crowds were through the bottom, even at a time where crowds game-wide were improving. You had a 15,000 average in 1994, but that was you know, being dragged along by Brisbane and Canberra and a few others. Even at this time of great growth in the game, you actually had Sydney clubs with falling attendances from 93 to 94. Agree, but like my point is having that 20-team national framework, then there could have been a few new towns from Sydney naturally yeah. and would have been a much stronger position. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think that natural attrition that we've talked about would have come into it. Again, I don't want to talk too much about mergers because that's something we're going to get to in time. But Andrew Ferguson, at Andrew RLP, of course, from the Rugby League Project, asked what would have happened if Balmain chose to stand alone West would have merged with Bulldogs. Would this have changed the boundaries for Parramatta, Balmain and the West Dogs? Could Balmain have survived? I think there's no way a team like Balmain survives. Yeah, this was their only hope and thank God Campbelltown's still got a team at the moment. So the question then is the carve-up of Sydney Rugby League. What was the perfect situation then? What is it now? And it's such a difficult question. I think in terms of what happened, we've said it multiple times already, I think West's and Canterbury would have been perfect. What do you do with Balmain? There's either the inner city super club with East and or Souths, which I don't think really would have worked. The other big one was the Parramatta-Balmain merger, which was a favourite at the time. And I think that actually makes more natural sense than the West Tigers. Yeah, it does. I just I hate the idea of sharing grounds. I realise your, uh, your club does that, but to me it's hodgepodgey. When they're in separate cities, I think it's acceptable. But I would definitely sacrifice Cogra Oval to see the Dragons more firmly established as the Wollongong Club. Maybe some improvements to the Wynn Stadium uh, and maybe like there's a couple of games each year at Cogra. I'd certainly sacrifice that to plant a flag a bit deeper than what the Dragons have done in you know the 20 years since the merger. If we want to be a global sport, or even a national sport, you can't be having like half your games in one Sydney suburb and half in the other. And what you definitely can't have is that situation with a third stadium with a different club playing in the middle of it. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, take all the Sharks fans, if you want to send angry tweets and emails, do it. It just makes no sense to have that team where it is. Uh, and if you were. It makes exactly the same sense as South and East. Yeah, None. yeah, exactly. And now we're in a situation where South and East are two of the stronger Sydney teams, both financially and currently on field. Culturally, that's never going to work. So you're in a situation where you can't merge them. It doesn't really make sense to fold them. Uh, I know uh, the NRL economist shared the opinion of Roy Masters saying that East were one of the most expendable Sydney clubs because of their small geographical area and fan base. But realistically, when they're one of the few clubs that has their shit together, it doesn't really make any sense to get rid of them. Well, the blowback from listeners on that was that Roy Masters was uh, talking dribble, I quote, <laughs> but he's just being rational without looking at on-field performance and finances. He's just looking at location and they've got a five square mile geography landlocked by the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, realistically, Souths came back into the comp and 
at heart, I'm glad they're still in it. I love the success they've managed to get to eventually, but them coming back into the competition has caused headaches that we're still feeling the effects of 15 years later. Well, I mean, I don't want to see either club go because they're both uh, legendary clubs, and you know. Yeah. But I mean, if you're looking at it with cold hard rationale, yeah, they're two suburbs side by side. <laughs> it comes back to if you are starting from scratch, how would your competition look? And it would definitely not have South and East. It would definitely not have St George, Illawarra, and Cronulla. And you can go on and on from there. So I realise we've got a hundred odd years of tradition to try to tangle ourselves out of, but. Yeah. And then Manly somehow survives because they've got the whole north, northern side of Sydney to yeah. themselves. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if the Northern Eagles split went the other way, it's actually looking a lot more sustainable now. If it was just the Central Coast Bears, like, you know, maybe it was the Northern Eagles playing out of Gosford, you know, as the original plan was, that merger falls apart and North Sydney are the dominant partners. I think that is a more tenable situation than what you have in Manly, which is a peninsula. As I did in my business uh, course at Newcastle Uni in 1998, I did the sustainability of the Central Coast Bears and it was a winner, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> We've been going on for a while now. Obviously, the corona stuff has uh, taken precedence of all the questions we had planned. So maybe we'll just do one more and, and then get out of here. So this was from uh, Simpsons-related NRL memes, which are a really good account. They're escaping the brief somewhat with this tweet. had nothing to do with the Simpsons, but... How does 1996 play out if the 23rd Feb decision went the other way and there were two comps in that year also? Would the Super League Grand Final be just the same as it was in 97? Do the Bears win their last premiership? Yeah, good question. A great question. I want to talk about it in terms of that first part, that court decision, and also the Newcastle Grand Final. How both of those things played their part in the ARL winning the cultural war. Yeah. That first court case win legitimised the ARL in a public discourse that was already suspicious of Super League, already, to a large extent, uh, in favour of the traditional competition. Once that decision came down, suddenly Super League was looking even more illegitimate and it was going to be that much harder to gain a foothold, uh, certainly in the Sydney landscape. Couldn't agree more. I think if Super League won that one, everyone would have went, oh, ARL's outgunned here, it's gone, it's over. But I think the flip side to that is... There's been Super League insiders that talked about how important, in hindsight, having 1996 to prepare was. Oh, it would have been a shambles, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you had the Adelaide Rams, who were a subject of an upcoming chapter, announced, you know, a few months before football was supposed to kick off in 1996 with no players, no coaches, you know. I think that year was necessary. Even with that year, you look at some of the mistakes that were made in the the presentation of Super League. So it's one of those, I don't know where I land on that because they certainly needed that extra year for preparation, but it just made everything harder for them to not win that initial court case. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But I mean, uh, before we go on, I need to recommend the Adelaide Rams account on Twitter, Adelaide underscore Rams, the funniest account on Twitter. Um, my favorite account. Except maybe for the Dale Shearer hourly account, which I love. <laughs> but... um. Last week with the Union episode, we talked about how quickly they got the entire three-continent competition together. Super League had a year to get theirs together, and it was still a bloody shambles. Actually, for comedy value, I would have loved to see the Super League product in 1996. It would have been the equivalent of the Optus Vision TV falling. Yeah. (laughs) 
But then I guess one way around that is there probably would have been an appeal in the ARLs from the ARL side. So maybe you're looking at a 97 start regardless. Who knows? Talk about do the Bears win their last premiership? I think it's just the Bears. They're always going to be a bit short, aren't they? But, I mean, I wouldn't want them to win half a comp anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we did get a lot more questions which we were planning, but I think that is probably all I've got left in my brain uh, at this stage of the week. So we might finish up there. Uh, wanted to thank everyone again for all your kind words, all your brilliant correspondence. Please keep that coming. Uh, of course, the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, follow us, send in any thoughts you might have. Stay safe. Any closing words, Andrew? No, I just want to say thank you to everyone as well. And what a great community. Love all the interactions all the time. It makes me laugh every day. Yeah, we're, we're going to keep going with this podcast because we really enjoy doing it, obviously. And it gives everybody a chance to take their mind off things. We realize it's not the most important thing in the world at the moment, but hopefully it gives someone a bit of a bit of a laugh. For sure. And if you do know anyone who's particularly missing their footy, please uh, send them our way. Uh, and with that, we'll get out of here. So thank you so much. We'll be back with Chapter 19 next week. We'll see you later. Toodaloo.